So the dark triad is a psychological theory of personality. The three malevolent qualities are narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. Top three professional government serial killer occupations. One, police or security official. Two, military personnel. Three, religious official. When I was 14 years old, I ran away from my mother. I wanted to get away from my mother because I was dreaming, thinking, fantasizing murder all day long. The only motive that there ever was was to completely control a person. How were you with animals at that age? Deadly. Eventually, the fire got too big for him and he didn't run anymore. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. In the studio, I'm joined by my co-host, Austin. Yo. What's up, man? And behind the scenes and with a mic today, Daniel is back. What's up, man? I got my voice back. He got his voice back. And hopefully you'll be hearing a lot more from Daniel today because today's episode is going to be a little bit different than how we normally do it here on the show. Typically, we kind of dive deep into a story and... You know, we kind of work our way through that and kind of get to the end where we discuss a little bit more. But today's going to be very much an open discussion episode. Yeah. And our topic, I think, is one of the most interesting and intriguing, really, fields out there. And that is getting inside the mind of a serial killer and really trying to understand how they think, why they do what they do. Is there a possibility to rehab a serial killer? send them to prison, rehab them, and then allow them to rejoin society? Or is that just a horrible, horrible idea? And there's nothing we can do for them. Among a bunch of other very, very interesting questions that we've drummed up, we're basically going to be diving in deep on this, having internal discussion here. And then obviously for all of you watching or listening at home, we'd love for you to be a part of the discussion as well, which on that note, we do live premieres of our episodes on YouTube, 1230 Mount Standard Time, every Friday. And it's honestly really cool to see all of you or people that join us for that conversation. I mean, like this last week, tons of discussion. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love being in there. And it's not that we don't always discuss, you know, the topic at hand. Yeah, just yeah. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we get a little sidetracked. But it's a lot of fun hopping in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's cool to get that kind of instant feedback. And then obviously we look at comments, reviews, all that kind of stuff. But this this topic is one that is probably one of the reasons why I got into true crime in the first place. I mean, I've been a fan of, I, I hate saying a fan of true crime because it's just, it's, it's like, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. It's like, you're a fan of crime. I'm in, I'm interested in it. Like it's a natural interest of mine that I've had from a super young age. Like I grew up reading the Hardy Boy books. Same. Oh my Did God. You? Yeah. yeah. Like I've read every single one of those books probably. Nice. And it's like that mystery. I guess it's really the obsession with the mystery behind crime and criminals and why they do what they do. And then obviously when things happen and 
you're trying to find the clues and piece it together. I mean, even go farther than that. Scooby-Doo, man, like hell yeah, <laughs> the mystery machine. That's where, that's really where I think the passion first started, you know, obsessed with trying to figure out who the bad guy is in the very end. It always ends up being somebody who is like, you know, they saw earlier on the episode. Oh, it's the doctor. Yeah, old the man mask. Jenkins. Yeah, yeah, old man Jenkins. What about you? Where do you feel like true crime kind of popped into your you know, circle of interest? I mean, I grew up with Hardy Boys as well. Um, you know what? A, a big show that I haven't watched it in years, but it was uh, Criminal Minds, oh, which yeah. was about yeah. FBI profilers. Yep. That I was obsessed with that show. Me and my mom would just watch it constantly. Um, and I think that's what got me especially into serial killing specifically. It's uh, the fact that they can scientifically profile people, catch them that way is actually incredible to me. Yeah, well, you have to like, yeah, that's what they, they those profilers do. They have to create, they have to say like, here's all of the things that we know what kind of person is this? Yeah. And that's kind of what we're going to get into as well as like, what are the traits of a serial killer? And obviously if you have a natural interest in criminology and crime and things like that, that you kind of work your way up to that, I guess. Like for me, it, as I got older, I started getting into the darker crimes and I'm trying to even remember the first serial killer I ever like read about in a book. And I want to say it was like, Ooh, I think it might've been Ted Bundy because my dad, told me about how he was in Colorado and stuff, but it might've even been, um, I think it was actually probably Jeffrey Dahmer just because that was an early one for me. You know, too. that's such an, he's such an infamous individual. And, yeah. You know, when you look up serial killer, I mean, it's just like his face is there. Yeah. Did you ever, first. uh, there was a graphic novel called, I think they turned it into a movie called my friend Dahmer. Did you ever read that? I know what you're talking about, but no, I never did read that. Yeah, it was written by the guy who went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, it's kind of insightful. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What was the first serial killer you... I think it was John Wayne Gacy. Mm. Only because of the gimmick of, you know, the... Killer clown. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then Jeffrey Dahmer was early on as well. It's funny because they're all kind of around the same time frame. At yeah. least the big ones are yeah. about 70s-ish. 70s, 80s, yeah. Yeah. No, it's... I think part of the fascination too is I know that sounds really weird to say, but that's kind of how I look at it is like, I'm interested in, you know, not just like killers, but if you think about anything that can kill you, we're all, I think we all have this innate fear of dying. And so we like, we want to know as much as we can about all the things that can kill us. And I think when you start getting into to true crime, it's easy for that content to start absorbing in. And you start having like real thoughts about it. Like, I don't know about you. I've had so many nights where I think I hear noises and things like that. Like people breaking into the house or, you know, with all the crazy stuff going on in the world, just being out in public and, you know, a shooting, you know, all of a sudden just breaks out. Yeah, It's like just part of being a human. Yeah. And it's like a way to, like you were saying, it sounds weird, but living vicariously I know that's actually, there's were studies done that the reason that true crime listeners are mostly female is because they're more often, in the stories that we listen to, they're more often the victims in those stories. And that's a strange way to like live vicariously as the victim. Like, if this were me, how would I have reacted differently, if at all? Or, you know, so that's actually why a lot of people listen to true crime. 
was actually talking with a friend about this job and doing this and like we cover a lot of horrific shit especially serial killers right so but in a weird way and this might be a little bit selfish but i do think when we learn about these stories it makes us not take each day for granted as cheesy as that sounds because we you know like going through these horrific stories i'm kind of like we get to live another day and we shouldn't take this for granted that's a that's a good positive pull out of it i mean yeah yeah, that's a very i would say that i would just i mean i think that's most of us right most of us i hope are taking that at the very least away from these of like i'm thankful to be alive right yeah i mean anything can happen at any point in time so that's that's a huge positive i think just with for me it's always like awareness right like just being aware of your surroundings being aware of your environment who's you know if you see something strange say something or you know tell somebody or do what you can to get out of the situation or just protect yourself i mean especially now it's just like i feel like you got to be prepared for anything another interesting point to think about when talking about serial killers and just true crime in general is no what's, not to what's just your disagree just no. for the sake of it but no. um you think it's not getting more dangerous out there? I think our access to media is might make amplifying. it seem like everything is just so screwed up 1,000% of the time, but I don't know. I think the fact that I know what's happening halfway around the world constantly, and it, I I have a feed right here and in my pocket constantly of just, there's always shit happening. It makes our perception change a little bit. Like, everything's dangerous or getting more dangerous i think it's just our access to the world and our access to media that's maybe distorting that perception which i think i don't think you're wrong by saying that because if you look at sort of the golden age of serial killers it was during a time when it's kind information, of dark. yeah information yeah. was was like in the newspaper you right know, actually put posters up to get the word out like there wasn't the internet there wasn't facebook groups there wasn't all this technology and What's it's so weird because like our perception is that the time period that our parents grew up in was safer than the time period we're growing up in. I mean, that's at least the way that I've kind of looked at it. But is it actually the opposite? Did they grow up in a far more dangerous world because they don't have the access to the information and communication, you know, at their fingertips like we do now? Right. And it was like, yeah, they would go hitchhiking or whatever. Yeah. And most got to their destination perfectly fine. But would you hitchhike today? <laughs> I have no reason to. So no. But let's say I didn't have a car means of transportation to get across the country or any money. I don't know. I'd like to see some stats on that. How how safe it can be from point A to point B. I Has think, hitchhiking gotten safer? <laughs> I think, I also think people are so hyper paranoid about hitchhiking now that it might be safer than we think only for that, like, stereotype of, yeah, the hitchhiker is going to kill you or, right. or the guy picking you up is going to kill you because time and again, we've seen those stories, but I don't know. It might actually be harder to be killed as a hitchhiker these days with just technology and phones and everything like that. True. Yeah. Yeah. Everything GPS, is, you know. Yeah dash cams and i mean there's so much technology and cameras everywhere which you know we'll kind of get into that why why does it seem like the serial killers have kind of gone away right yeah um is it technology but yeah. uh, daniel what's what's your thoughts do you feel like the world is getting more dangerous or are you kind of side with austin on it's just because 
our access to information is kind of overloading us or feeding us that narrative? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. Um, I do agree with Austin that because we have this constant flow of information of things that we wouldn't even normally pertain to us, it's definitely going to increase you know, our paranoia about certain situations. But then to go back when you said that our, that our parents grew up in a safer time, I don't think they grew up in a safer time. I just think that they had different dangers. Yeah, and different like, priorities too. Yeah. Yeah. I think their priorities were different and they weren't thinking about the things that we did or we do now. Exactly, exactly. And they're not seeing, they're certainly not seeing the media that we do now. Exactly. Did you guys get to just go like a summer vacation year 13? Did you guys just go hop on a bike and go half mile to your friend's house and you just biked around and like five shit? miles? Yeah. You did? Yeah. Well, went off. Okay. Cause I did that too. Did you, were you, I, uh, not really. No, my parents were pretty like stay close to the house. Like okay. I could go like within my neighborhood. Yeah maybe like a few blocks or something when i was older but certainly not like five miles or like i just wasn't allowed to cross any major streets mm, gotcha that was another rule too yeah definitely don't bike across the the busy busy road yeah i i grew up in a really safe area though so my parents would just be like all right be home before sundown yeah and i think that's a huge part of it is like if you live in a, a neighborhood or a community where it's tight knit and you know, you kind of grow up there and everybody knows each other. Like, I think that's a different story because that's how my wife Kendall grew up. She was like in a, basically like a little town and yeah. everybody knew everybody. And, and you know, they all ran around, went into random houses, yards, everything else. And for me, I moved around a lot. So I think my parents really never knew who was around us. And so I was like, kind of always like, you know, don't go into random houses. Yeah. Because, <laughs> And I, and I lived in a few kind of sketchy, a few sketchy places growing up where, you know, there's definitely, I mean, I remember one neighborhood I lived in, it was actually an old military base or like housing for the air force. And there would just be like SWAT raids on my street. Like, Whoa. and just, it, they were like abandoned houses too. And like, there was, I guess there was like drug mules running through there, stashing stuff into these houses. I had no idea. I'd ride my bike by it all the time and there'd be like fencing on the windows and stuff. And Damn. then, and then like at least a couple times every few months, like SWAT would be in the neighborhood, like busting the doors down. And Holy shit. I'd be like, oh. And my parents, are like, yeah, they're just doing drills. Yeah. They're just training. <laughs> and I'm like, mm. so I think, I think it's all just dependent upon where, where you grow up. And, yeah. and obviously your parents play a huge factor into it. And I know as I'm struggling with, am I going to be like a hover parent? Am I going to be too overprotective over my, my children and and that and i worry about that because i know no like there's no kid that likes it when their parents are overbearing or like overprotective of them yeah, the helicopter right yeah, yeah it's like you can't be like that otherwise they're not gonna be able to experience life but it's just like i feel like because i know so much about true crime and i've heard way too many cases and especially now i know the reality of sex trafficking human trafficking i know that children are abducted all the time all that like doesn't leave my head so i'm like do i take the chance and allow my daughter to do it you know at an appropriate age do those things and go out on her own or do i just be overly protective yeah to try to minimize the 
the opportunity or chance for something bad to happen. And I think you can't always take it all on yourself too, because you can educate her how to be safe, right, who to right. talk, you know, don't talk to strangers, et cetera, et Very cetera. True. So there are, there's things you can do, you know, that, and that she can do as well. And, and that's like one of the biggest things. And this is why I always say awareness is like, I think the number one way to protect yourself against being a victim of crime is to be aware of your surroundings like be aware yeah. of where you are what time it is what you know what part of the neighborhood you're in wherever you are and like buddy systems huge like yes. try not to be alone and like there's i think there are things you can do to protect yourself obviously but just those teachable things i think you can teach your kids and hopefully your kids will take those to heart and I mean, I plan to inform and educate and hopefully that'll make me, I think it'll probably make me feel better once I kind of see it's hard when they're so little and you're like, oh, there's nothing, they can, they're helpless. They can't right. do anything. So right. the fear is just like up here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I know with time and education, I'll be able to get, you know, get there. Yeah. But anyways, back to serial killers. <laughs> so is it possible to personally identify a serial killer? That's the question. So yeah, there's, if this I don't know if this is comforting for some people or not, but really there's only a projected amount of 200 serial killers in the U S so you kind of think either way about that one. That concerns me. That, that does it. Dude, that means like what there's 50 States, yeah. 200 serial killers. So you're talking what four per state. Oh, see, I see that differently. I see that as that's a very small amount. It's kind of rare to but, come across. But four out of how many people who live in the state, right? Like, right. Yeah. Then your chances are like, what, less than 1%? Pretty, pretty slim, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and statistically, you're way more likely to be killed by your significant other than you are just a random serial killer. So, um, but a good way to that's comforting. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to help me sleep better. <laughs> Oh, good. You know, I'm not going to get taken out by this serial killer. It's but going to be Kendall. My wife, on the other hand, <laughs> better not make her mad. Might be but her first victim. A good way to identify, it's very hard to identify a serial killer, but the biggest thing is that they fake empathy, which is hard to tell. If they're a good actor, obviously, that's really hard to read through. But um, So it's basically, can you identify genuine empathy versus someone acting out empathy? That's That's the big question. So... How do you recognize do. that? Yeah. And people say the only thing you can really trust at the end of the day is your own gut feeling, your instincts. That's really, that's it. So you just have to trust your gut. If, if you meet someone, something seems off, you're probably right. Even if you're being paranoid, if you just got have that feeling inside of you, you might be right. So just walk, like try and walk intuition away telling you that you need to get out of this situation. Yep. Or um, if you ever meet people and you're like, something's just off about that, that yeah. person. Like, they seem nice. They're maybe even being too nice. Or you're just like something. I've I've met a few people like that before. Same. I'm like, yeah. you just are. There's something off about you, and I don't want to spend. I don't want to get any closer to you or spend any time with you. Yeah, trust that feeling. You know, sometimes that's you coming over to my office, and I'm like, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hey, Josh, what's up? Sometimes like, man, that Austin guy, I don't know about him. Gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> yeah. That's really tough though. Yeah. Because unless you're like trained in reading body language and seeing those signs and red flags, like it's totally easy to get fooled by somebody like that into And they're known with them. they're known they're known for being 
manipulators, right? They're really good at the craft of manipulation. So that's usually very hard to tell if someone's faking empathy and they're also really good at manipulation. You know, it's like, it's like their whole life is that. Yeah, exactly. They realized I'm not winning in these areas, but I'm winning. I can win in this area and fulfill my dark desires by going this path. And then they just get really fucking good at it. You ever see like actors behind the scenes, like, you see like them filming the movie and you just watch the actors and you're like, this is weird as hell. What's going on? It's impressive that people can do that. But at the same time, it's like, that's essentially what a serial killer is doing. How do you do that? Yeah. To become someone else. Right. And I think it was Christian Bale studies. Like someone asked him what the, what role he took felt most like himself. And he said, uh, uh, American psycho. Because it's wow. what a, what a psychopath is doing is just acting. Yeah. They're really good at acting, right? Or at least the good ones that don't get caught. So yeah, they're really good at manipulation. They twist things, they distort perceptions, and they know how to use people's insecurities against them. It's just, it's terrifying. For example, BTK, Dennis Rader, who we've covered on this podcast, he went years without anyone knowing he did it. He had a daughter, he had a wife, he was x y and z he was a boy scout leader father local government official and the president of his church congregation that's terrifying and no one had any idea and the reason he got caught was he was he wanted to recommunicate with police because they hadn't figured out one of his last crimes and he contacted the local police station some some like 20 years later i can't even remember 30 years and it was uh he was like hey is it he used to type out his yeah, letters yeah. to police he got caught because he sent them a floppy disk and they read the metadata on the floppy disk and it was like well it's a guy named dennis <laughs> and it was used at right. a computer from his church and they narrowed it down like that it's so it, it's and it's often that's how they get caught it's like little slip-ups like that yep. they get so confident in what they do that they then start trying to toy and fuck with police and people but then they always end up making just a little mistake that ends up right. allowing police to identify them or just getting them caught. And it goes back to their, you know, where they're at head wise. Like they just think they're the longer they go, the more powerful they become to the yeah. point where they almost feel invincible yeah. and nothing can stop them where they're literally like taunting the police. Like, yeah. no, you'll never catch me. Some people know. theorize that he wanted to be caught. He's like, come on guys, you haven't caught me in so long. And I want the credit for all this. And that's why he did the stupid floppy disk shit. But um, yeah. And often they're so good at manipulating people and, and, and being covert about it. His own daughter, you know, tried to have a relationship with him for a while. Uh, but she even said after she's like, now nah, I kind of see through it now. It's all, well, how act. would you know what's real? Yeah. How would you know what you're like, what's the real version of your father? Right. Um, when he's been this double, it's like, which is the true version of him? Is it the killer or is it this scout leader, church congregation, you know, yeah. leader? They even said it was like, that's why it's like, there's the Dennis Raider version of him and then there's btk right. who's an alter ego essentially yeah um and often the people who are closest to them ha- really struggle because this is someone you've known possibly your whole life uh ted bundy's mother really struggled with the fact that he was a killer and she was even in denial about it for 
a really long time. She's like, he's a good student. He was a good normal boy. And uh, they just are so good at distracting you that you can't see their flaws. And that's why they're terrifying. But that's why the only thing they say is just uh, trust your gut. But let's talk a little bit about the origins of serial killers and the FBI's involvement in this whole process of really making this term what it is today. Serial murderers have existed throughout history and have been popularized by such killers as Jack the Ripper in England and Herman Webster Mudgett or H.H. Holmes in the United States in the late 1800s, which we believe H.H. Holmes was America's very first First serial killer. Terrifying individual. Did you ever read that book, The Devil in the White City? No, there was supposed to be a movie made. Yeah, there was that. like, I think Scorsese had the rights to it, but I don't know it if they ever made. went through it. Yeah, yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio was supposed to be H.H. Yeah. H. Holmes, which would be that, that, would be... that book was insane. Oh, I'm sure. I highly recommend. I mean, all the things that H.H. H. Holmes did. He basically created like a murder castle. Yeah, it was a hotel. Hotel, yeah, yeah. had all the murder rooms in there, yeah. Terrifying. But the exact origin of the term serial killer or serial murderer is not known but appears to have come into use in law enforcement circles in the late 1970s. In the 1930s, the FBI became a household name as it tackled violent gangsters and gained more law enforcement authorities in the process. In the 1950s and 60s, the FBI supported local and state law enforcement in some high-profile serial killer cases like the Boston Strangler and the Zodiac Killer of Northern California. But it was in the 1970s when the FBI's role in addressing serial killers began to grow as new capabilities were developed. Because for the longest time, it'd be like there'd be all these murders, but they really weren't able to connect them to one person. (laughs) They they never really wrapped their head around the fact that one person could actually be moving between locations, committing murder after murder after murder. Yeah, which is wild to me that (laughs) it went so long before they kind of like figured that out. That together, yeah. But again, it kind of goes back to technology and things like that. Like information sharing just wasn't really a thing. It was yeah. like they kept it and like jurisdictions, right? It was like, oh, it happened in this city and another one happened in this city, but they ha- they weren't crossing notes. It wasn't digitized yet. You know, it was all still on paper. Yeah, it wasn't like there was a database they could enter it in and then right. somebody else could search that database and find yep. more information. But it was really the FBI that began to apply the insights of psychology and behavioral science in order to really take a look at violent criminal behavior. The FBI's involvement in serial killer cases has also evolved under federal law. For example, the FBI was authorized to investigate violent crimes against interstate travelers in 1994 and serial killing specifically in 1998. The FBI may investigate only when requested to do so by an appropriate law enforcement agency. The Bureau is also authorized to provide a variety of support services from laboratory and behavioral analysis to crime statistics collection and the sharing of criminal identification and history information through our longstanding services and systems. So they really helped local law enforcement out tremendously by giving them all these these resources to use and obviously the databases they've created has you know, completely changed law enforcement forever and really allowed them to begin to work together to solve these serial killer cases that were just going on for years and years and years without really any anybody having a clue or maybe they had a clue but they had no way to tie them to multiple right murders did, did you ever uh, watch mine hunter on netflix i've i've started that show a little bit really good show Dude, yeah, I, i've great. watched like the first episode oh well, a while ago when it first came out i got to go back to that it's so good because it's i mean it's a 
fictionalized version of like it's how the on. FBI started profiling serial killers, but it's really good. Uh, bummer, we'll never get season three. They they officially canceled. I heard about that. Yeah. yeah, great show though. Honestly, so that leads us to a very very important question when it comes to serial killers: Are serial killers born? Or are they created? Like, is this something that happens over time? Yeah, this is one of the biggest questions, right, in regards to serial killers. So many famous serial killers have been psychopaths, but not all people we'd call psychopaths or sociopaths are violent. So just to state that right out of the gate. Clues to psychopathy and sociopathy are usually available in childhood. Most serial killers suffer from psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder, sometimes both. Some say the difference between the two is basically a nature versus nurture. Mm. From birth, a psychopath's brain has underdeveloped impulse control and emotional centers, but antisocial personalities are usually learned throughout their childhood. They usually develop during an abusive or neglected childhood, typically. So a psychopath's brain would be there would just be a sort of a deficiency there yeah, from like, birth. Yeah, a wiring issue, essentially, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Whereas in something like abuse, neglect can affect someone to become antisocial. With that, with that being the nurture side of things. Exactly, yep. The brain wiring is nature, mm -hmm. something that's out of our control. Then there's the nurture part, dealing with the actual family life, home life. Yep. Okay. And so it's not exclusive to one or the other. A lot of the times it's both, and many serial killers are also psychopaths. In the eyes of the law, though, psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder are not the same as insanity. So that's why a lot of serial killers, you just can't claim insa insanity a lot. A lot try, though, but it's just not the case. Killers who are deemed insane cannot discern right from wrong. But many serial killers do know right from wrong. They just don't care. That's the major difference between someone who is insane and someone who's a psychopath or a serial killer. Um, insanity means you just can't decipher the two. You're, you're, in essence, not operating in this reality. Exactly. Like yep. you are in a false reality or that's the way you're perceiving the world. And so there is no, you know, you are living life by a whole other set of rules versus somebody who is not insane. Exactly. They're yeah. still making, they're aware of the choices they're making and how they affect the reality they're living in. Exactly. Okay. That's one of the, that's the, one of the biggest differences. Um, some have genetic flaws like deficits in the amygdala or prefrontal cortex. Mm. Also, this kind of became a big issue more recently, probably within the last 10 years, a lot of people started connecting the dots between early childhood head injuries when they were young to serial killers growing up because um, it affects key areas in the frontal lobe. Mm. That, that's really interesting to me that head trauma at a young age can affect how the brain develops, affects the parts of the brain itself that operate. And that's that's what this all really comes back to, the the absolute mystery that is the brain. Like we understand the yeah. brain fairly well but we don't have a way to like fix those issues right like we don't right. have a way to fix the wiring per se yeah. i mean we're starting to experiment and there's lots of different natural and pharmaceutical drugs and and procedures that are coming out that are supposed to help reverse some of these things 
But at the end of the day, it's like anybody could be developing these things. And that's the thing is like, but how far do those go? Like just because you have, say you have a head injury as a child and your, you know, part of your brain doesn't develop properly and that causes a personality disorder or something like that. Does that like, that doesn't necessarily mean you end up being a killer, right? No, so it's no. like, at what point does it kind of go to the dark side? Like at what point does it become evil? Right. And where is that influence coming from? Right. And that's why they think a lot of the times it's a mixture of antisocial personality disorder. Mm, the two hand on top hand. of psychopathy is which like would make sense. Terrible combo. Yeah. Cause that's what you find, right? Is that it's the antisocial part of it is like almost there every single time in yep. some facet. Yeah, they exactly. were antisocial, bullied, rejected, didn't have meaningful relationships, isolated, you know, isolated growing up. So I think that's where the the root is. And then these other things are kind of there that exist there, maybe even before this this happens. And the two kind of, like you said, tie together and just accelerates the ability, which again, not everybody who has both of these things ends up being a killer. So it's right, like, yeah. but it do, does it make you more susceptible to act on impulse, to act on these feelings that you're having. And, and again, like a lot of it also goes back to sexual desire for especially the, the male serial killers. A lot of it's like control, sexual domination, um, or some that suppressed sexual feelings and, and desires. And then it kind of, they weren't able to work through those in a healthy way and then end up turning to evil in order to, to make those things happen for them. Yeah, and I think that's the second biggest question in regards to serial killers. So if the first ones, you know, are they born or created? I think the second question is why do they kill? So if you, if you have these misfirings in the brain or you were abused and neglected as a child, well, what is that impulse to kill? But the other part of it too is serial killers use killing to connect with people. And often that means in a sexual way that it's not necessarily about the killing aspect of it. They kill because of the sexual part and because they feel that that's the only, that's what has to be done, I guess, if they go that route. But oftentimes it, it stems from their need to control. And this is like almost universal, I think, among all serial killers. It's like they, they feel out of control unless they're, they have a victim and they're, they're you know, they're killing essentially. We actually have a short clip of Jeffrey Dahmer talking about control. I want to play real quick. The only motive that there ever was, was to completely control a person, a person that I found physically attractive and uh, keep them with me as long as possible, even if it meant just keeping apart. The, he said the only factor in his case, obviously not for everyone, but Yet the only factor was control for Jeffrey Dahmer. Wow. That he was willing to kill and then keep a part of his victims. But that's the thing. Is that a truthful answer? Or is he just saying that to make himself not look so evil and so monstrous? Because the way he puts that is like, not, not saying... You feel bad for him, but it's like he's definitely looking for you to feel sympathy for him and be like, oh, 
poor guy. He never felt in control of his life or any of the people that he had around him so much so that he, he needed to do it, do this horrific stuff to people in order to achieve that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you bring that up and question that because that's what we started this podcast with was remember that they're highly manipulative. Yeah, exactly. So you can't always trust what they say. Unfortunately, that's where a lot of the data and research comes from those through interviews with them. But yeah, it's like at the same time, can we this, trust anything they yeah, say in these right, interviews? Like exactly. it could all be complete bullshit. So it's like, true. how accurate is our data? Yeah. Are they, because it's like how many serial killers are going to sit there and be like, yeah, I'm fucking evil. I just want to do this because I want to just terrorize people. Right. I just want everybody to be absolutely terrorized by me or I'm mad. And you know, this is me getting back at like how much of it is malice and malevolent intentions as opposed to like, Oh my, you know, all these mental disorders and trauma that I had just got out of control. And then it just kind of led me to do this. And I, there's nothing I could do about it. It's just how I felt about it. And it's like, is that possible? Sure. And it, and it probably is in, in some cases, but I still question because it's like, sure, but there's also people that go through similar situations that go through horrific trauma as a child, maybe got dropped on their head. Like that's still managed to not eat people. Right. It's like, at what point was it like in Dahmer's instance made sense for you to start eating people? Yeah. Where does that Right, keeping plug your skulls in the fridge. Yeah, and like, yeah. and like, at what point does that make any sense? Yeah, and that's another really good point to always keep in mind is that there's no like definitive answer for what is and what isn't, but it's usually a, a lot of layers going on there. Yeah, and that's the hard part. And, and I hope we're not coming off sounding like this is just such a simple thing. Like, yeah, here's no, the it's... simple definition. Here's the simple factors that make a serial killer. Like, we're just merely discussing this really from our own points of view with with some expert information kind of intertwined but like ultimately it is a, it's a very much a complex multi-layered issue that no i don't think anybody fully understands i think yeah that's why there's the field of criminologies because there's constant studying and uh when you talk about the brain like not understanding the way that the brain works like i don't think we've even even completely been able to map every part of the brain yet and understand how it works, what it does to the point that we need to, in order to really start figuring some of this stuff out. Like we know parts of it, but we don't know all of the, you know, we don't even know where consciousness originates from. So right. how can you know all these other answers until you know that question? And I don't right. know if we'll ever answer that one. That's A lot of people I, think it's in the brain, but is it right? Yeah. So it's just like, and then you can even take it a, deeper than just you know when you talk about consciousness and you talk about consciousness of serial killers well how much of the brain is playing into that and how much of it is just they're an evil soul or, an, or an evil spirit or something or they're inhabited by something evil right something evil has become a part of them yeah so i, I do like the idea that you know fbi profilers they're out there and they can kind of put together this vague picture of what a serial killer is but yeah there's no ultra hd 4k version of a serial killer profile it just doesn't exist but yeah hopefully we can try and paint a rough picture of of what they are yeah th this you know going back to nature versus nurture 
I think nurture is clearly the bigger part because many come from abuse, unstable homes, moving frequently, might even develop this lack of control at an early age, which I mean, I've I've definitely felt out of control in my life. I've moved a lot and I can kind of relate to not feeling in control of my situation because my parents controlled my situation and where I lived and where I went to school and things like that. And it definitely made me more rebellious, I think, as a teenager, because I was like kind of sick of it and like, fuck this, I want to do what I want to do instead of just following you guys wherever you want to go. And so I kind of get that. But here's a here's a clip of Ed Kemper actually talking about some of these things I just mentioned. Let's hear what he has to say. Did you feel like an outsider, an outcast early on? I always felt like an outsider, and it's again because I didn't ever fit in. I'd moved around a lot, for one thing. Uh, I went to different schools when I was in Los Angeles from age, you know, five till seven, when I'm going to uh, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Uh, I got in trouble in public school, and I look fondly back on those times because that's when I was acting out and I was normal, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying I went around and kidnapped people in classrooms or broke windows out. We didn't get into stuff like that. But I was tardy and I was messing around and I was recalcitrant. I was getting bad marks for it. And my parents were getting called by the PTA. But you know what? That's a hell of a lot better than a few years later when I'm real spooky and I'm real quiet and nobody ever hears from me and I'm in school and I go home and very few people knew me because I'm in that basement and now I'm pulling into myself and now things are getting very morbid in their orientation he's so well spoken as, as weird as that sounds but i i there's something i want to believe him too with just the way he speaks because he just like so many of them speak with such confidence and they speak with it sounds like they're speaking with integrity right? yeah right and he uses like, the word recalcitrant like yeah well, this I, guy's I got that in reading there. in prison constantly like yeah. this guy sounds I've never so even smart. heard that word before yeah i think recalcitrant. it's like uh, it's like stubborn um wow de defying like authority or something like that well but, a lot of these guys are really intelligent like book smart i mean look at ted bundy dude was super smart yeah. like i think that's what makes them more terrifying is the fact that they are so smart 100 yeah. one thing that he mentioned that i found very interesting is he was like i was normal when i was acting out in school because it's like yeah it's pretty normal yeah i acted out in school same you definitely did yeah. at catholic school <laughs> I know for a fact you did too. <laughs> that was normal though, right? It was normal to get in trouble and goof around in class and like, you know, tardy and stuff like that. Like that's all pretty typical stuff. But then he was like, then it all changed when I went home, went into the basement and pulled into myself. And when I heard pulled into myself, I was like, ah, that's where it gets. And that's what's so crazy is like pulling into yourself and diving into who you are truly and just spending time with yourself can be a good thing or a bad thing yeah. depending on who you, who are. you are right and the isolation of that having nobody around to see what you're doing to judge what you're doing and so it i can see how very easily you can go to the dark side and you start like he said morbid and things really go south fast versus if you it's much harder to dive that deep into evil and then go back and try to be normal around your friend like you're just going to be different people are going to notice something's off about you so you have to isolate yourself i feel like yeah i feel like it's very difficult at some point serial killers isolate themselves because 
it almost becomes impossible to pass as a normal person anymore. Obviously, there's there's a few that have done that, but for the most part, they become very isolated, and that's when they really lean into those overwhelming wants and desires or I guess thirst for blood that they have like yeah one of the psychologists I was watching a video of him and he said yeah one of the key components for a lot of serial killers is lonerism mm. that just like isolation being a loner that antisocial behavior yeah and you just kind of collapse in on yourself like you were saying like he was saying well and it also forces you to look at the world differently when you pull in yourself you start seeing everybody else around you totally different. Yeah. And uh, I, I hate relating this to myself because it's uh, <laughs> like this, it's, I don't want to be relating myself to a serial killer. But when talking about the psychological things, like I moved, I went to a lot of different schools. I went to 13 schools. I went to three high schools. Damn. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. Like four middle schools, like five elementary schools. Yeah, and I wasn't in a military family. My my parents were just teachers and they just moved wherever jobs were. But I was that new guy over and over and over again. And so I absolutely figure had to figure out how to adapt, how to sort of be a chameleon and like figure out where I'm going to fit in and where I'm going to be happy with with people. But there was a lot of I mean there's times where I was complete loner. And had I not involved myself in sports, I would have been like nobody would have known known me other than maybe knowing me from class, but otherwise they would not even have known who I was. And so it's like, and I remember I went through a really, really like dark, that was like the darkest point in my life was like 16 to 18. Like that was when I was like leaving religion. And that was also going through shit with my parents and my family and a lot of shit was going on all at the same time. But like I started pulling into myself and things got really dark, like not to the point wherever I, I, I'm never hurt anybody, but certainly the anger level gets to a point where it's like, I wouldn't care if I just left all of you behind and just left dipped and never saw you again. You yeah. know, and that was kind of where I was at. So it's like, it's, it's a very dangerous place to be when you stop surrounding yourself with people because unless you're in a good headspace, I feel like it almost always ends. And you look at not even just serial killers, but you look at some of the most dark, events in history you look at the columbine shooters and stuff like that you look at those people and you start realizing like they all started to do that they kind of once you dive into your own world and that if that world's dark then you start seeing everybody else as the enemy it's very easy to then be like have this distorted reality right and you're like they don't fit into my world anymore so i need to you know, get rid of them or get back at them for putting me in this place, right? Like you made me become this. Yeah. So I have to, I guess, seek revenge, but it's, yeah, I mean, we're social creatures. Yeah. We're supposed to be with other people. I mean, I'm a bit more on the introverted side, so I, I like my alone time and I like to be, you know, but there, yeah, I guess there's a difference between being alone and like being isolated. That is unhealthy to some degree. And if other parts of your life are unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. I think it's okay to be a loner as long as you have healthy relationships somewhere, right? Yeah. Whether it's with your friends, family, significant other, like you need, like we need that as humans. Like for sure. I don't know that we can operate without those successfully. Yeah. I think that's where it really goes wrong for serial killers is because they 
fall into themselves and they have no support, zero support behind them. They have nobody to talk to about these thoughts and things that are going on in their head. And so they just lean into it and it just becomes overwhelming to the point where they just have to, it for, it almost forces them to act on, on these things that they're fantasizing about in their head. And, and then once they do it, they get that rush. They get that adrenaline rush they're looking for. They get whatever satisfaction they, they are looking for. And then they're like, ah, that's what I was, that's what I needed. And then it just sort of fuels them. And then they just continue and continue until they're stopped. Yeah. There are cases like, I think Ed Kemper talks about it too, where he gets engaged at some point mm-hmm. and that was when he actually starts reducing and killing because he's kind of breaking out of that shell that he had built around him for right. so long. So yeah, there are those kind of instances where these killers stop being so isolated and their killing urges kind of start to dissipate. Obviously they don't disappear, but there are those cases. Yeah. The more isolated you are, I think the worse it is. And the less people you have potentially looking over your shoulder, yeah, that the too. easier it is for you to, to just continue leaning into it yeah, and not, worried you know not worried that somebody's going to find out yeah yeah so there's actually four topologies of a serial killer there's a visionary killer which usually suffers from some form of mental illness or disorder there's power and control killers who feed a very deep insecurity within themselves and then there's hedonistic killers who are in it for the thrill or things like money and then there's mission oriented killers who just want to rid the world of someone. And so I guess they all sort of fall into these different topologies when you really think about it. I mean, I think that's a pretty good summarization of For different types. All yeah. killers, yeah. yeah. And uh, a lot of it always stems from childhood trauma. Uh, a lot of serial killers, they just have a terrible home life during childhood. So people like Ed Kemper, they seek this revenge getting back at their parents because his, his mother was abusive to him and it's just a way to redirect rage. He was locked in his basement by his mom uh, and X, Y, and Z. She was ver- verbally abusive. Um, and that trauma that's most predictive of creating psychopaths is maltreatment by the mother. Mm. That bond is so fundamental to our survival as a species. That's the person that brings us into this world. And to have that level of betrayal that that's the person who abuses us, more often than not, we see that connection with a lot of serial killers. It also plays into their, I mean, when you have that sort of relationship with your mother, imagine how that taints your image of women forever too. Right, yeah. And you know, oftentimes why they go the route of women as victims. Yeah. And, uh, here's actually a clip of Ed Kemper talking about his relationship with his mother. What the, these experts don't notice in the, in the, in the picture, I haven't seen it in writing anywhere. It could be somewhere. Um, that when I was 14 years old, I ran away from my mother. They mentioned that. But if you look at it in the overall picture, why did I run away? I wanted to be with my father. That's a very topical uh, approach to it. I wanted to get away from my mother because I was dreaming, thinking, fantasizing murder all day long. I couldn't get it out of my head. She and I, I couldn't battle with her because I was very intimidated by her. She's six feet tall. She weighs two and a quarter. 
225 pounds. She's not a fat woman. She's just this great big woman who I was terrified of. She had uh, verbal capabilities you wouldn't believe. I used to watch her field strip grown men in emotional uh, little contests. And when they get to the point where they wanted to smack her, then she started attacking them on beating women. Oh, slap the woman around, you know. And then she'd toy with them on that. And I'd watch these guys dance around the room having fits, knocking out windows, punch a hole in the door, and stomp off. And she could control people like that. I'm sitting there watching that in awe from the one point of view and in terror from the other. I grew up with this stuff. She did that to my dad when they were always battling before the divorce. I'm not trying to put on her what happened to the girls or to her. But I'm saying there was a lot of psychological involvement there. So yeah, a lot of people believe that he was just trapped in this childhood misery of this. And uh, his first victims, I believe, were his grandparents. And later, his last victim was his own mother. And then he turned himself in and he was quoted saying, the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing, and at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and call it all off. So yeah, that was after killing his mother. So a lot of people think it was that childhood trauma that connected back to his final killing, and then he said, my purpose is gone, basically. So it was like, all, and then all the other killings were, in essence, feeding into... Or stemming from the anger he had. That revenge his, that his he mother. Wanted, yeah. yeah, That's the idea, at least. That's mm. the theory. Um, a Radford University study looked at the childhood experiences of 50 serial killers. Supposedly 68% of them had experienced some type of abuse. Either physical, sexual, psychological, or neglect. 68%. That, that's So basically amount. like two-thirds of them. Yeah. yeah. Psychological abuse has some of the greatest effects on future serial killers. Cruelty and things like bullying contribute a lot towards a killer's manifestation of violence. Neglect is also a big factor. If they're not receiving empathy from a parent, especially, they struggle to develop the ability to empathize with others, right? And that makes sense. I think empathy is kind of a learned ability to some degree, right? Well, you think about how you end up as an adult, you, you start realizing, especially in your later years like how much you actually pull from your parents and how many qualities and things that you do now that you're you remember your parents doing absolutely i mean i'm sure what how do you feel about that like feel like that's pretty true Daniel? i mean i think that's pretty true as i've gotten older uh i've definitely realized that i'm a lot more like my dad and my brother's a lot more like my mom yeah I that's just, always interesting too especially when you have a sibling and your siblings more like one of your parents and then you're more like the other parent i'm always like why is that yeah. why is it that like one of us is like is it like genetic like we i just ended up with more genetic traits from that parent and that's why you almost like identify with one parent over the other right like oh yeah i'm more like my mom and sometimes we say that in like yeah well you're more like dad so yeah you know, that's <laughs> Sorry, why you're dude. <laughs> you're you're fucked up man but like yeah it's it, it's this whole part of like parenting is so clear to me now, especially being a parent. Like once you become a parent, you start, you realize so much you're like, holy shit, this is the most important job that I have. Right. 
because it is so impactful on your child and your child's future, how you parent them and how you raise them and the way you go about doing certain things. And it makes complete sense to me now that I'm a parent that serial killers, 68% of them come from these abusive homes. And it even can be, I mean, verbal is just as bad as physical in many, many ways, many cases, because oftentimes it's used more often than physical and it could be just words, as emotionally words are, devastating yeah, words are, man especially coming from someone who brought you into the world right, right? yeah right oh yeah so outright trauma not even from parental abuse but just from trauma you know we already talked about head injuries can affect it uh, supposedly jeffrey dahmer was this joyful energetic kid but he had a hernia operation at six years old and they said ever since that he withdrew and he seemed detached from his emotions. In his adolescence and early adulthood, Dahmer secretly collected the dead bodies of animals that he found in the roads to keep the bones that fascinated him. So that's kind of when it, this odd behavior started. The Child Psychology Service also states that there's a possible link between urinating in bed and childhood trauma, and this kind of opens up this whole serial killer trifecta yeah yeah also known as the mcdonald triad so jm mcdonald a psychiatrist who published a 1963 study of previous research into links between childhood behavior and later violent crimes which included serial killing and he basically came up with this triad that includes animal cruelty starting fires and bedwetting for base also like austin said the serial killer trifecta that serial killers almost always have one of these things, if not all three of these things in their history. So when talking about bedwetting, the scientific name for it is enuresis, which is unintentional bedwetting during sleep, persistent after the age of five. The bedwetting must continue twice a week for at least three consecutive months, I guess, to be considered enuresis. Bedwetting is connected in the report to a feeling of overriding humiliation that also instigates the other two behaviors. Children who have tragically been neglected might have been left in soiled diapers growing up. Others may have been punished for having an accident or otherwise not received the care, attention, and encouragement required to master the bathroom. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because that's like such a, even as a, like even as an adult, that's like still a very, very embarrassing thing for all of us to like, you know, go to the bathroom in your bed or pants or, you know, have an accident. I guess it's just like, it's like one of the most humiliating things and it makes sense that if that's like a frequent thing as a child, how that might, you know, develop over time is yeah. something bigger. And like learning that and not doing that is such a bedrock of growing up, which, you know, you'll be going to that pretty soon here. I don't know when you start it's potty like, training. Yeah. It's like after she turns a year old, I think like year and a half or so around there. Yeah. And that's so early in our years to be learning that thing so that does make sense that it might stem from something deeper in there because it's so foundational yeah but it's also like why it's so important to change your baby's diaper not just like leave them in their right soiled diapers for extended periods of time which obviously is not healthy or hygienic at all but it has a psychological effect on them as well yeah it can lead to insecurity anxiety and even trauma Bedwetting into the tween and teen years has also been used as an indicator of possible childhood sexual abuse, which we see so often in, in many cases, um, especially involving the deaths or murders of children. I'm thinking of John JonBenet Ramsey. I don't know if you know that case, yeah. but 
bedwetting is a, a big factor in that one. Mm-hmm. Then there's arson. We've talked about arson a number of times here at Lights Out. But arson or fire setting is theorized to be a less severe or the first shot at releasing aggression. Extensive periods of humiliation have been found to be present in the childhoods of several adult serial killers. And these repetitive episodes of humiliation can lead to feelings of frustration and anger, which need to somehow be released in order to return to a normal state of self-worth. A review suggested that this behavior is just one that can occur in the context of childhood antisocial behavior and is not necessarily predictive of later violence. So just because you know you burn some shit because you're mad when you're a teen doesn't mean you're going to go you know do anything more than that. Right. No. It's usually always connected with this trifecta. It's not just isolated by itself. Because um, who do, who doesn't as a young boy who doesn't like lighting some things on fire? It's kind of fun, right? So no, this is in the yeah, the bigger scheme here. And uh, the third piece was like we mentioned, uh, animal abuse, which is a pattern in serial killers, perpetrators even of school shootings and mass murders. So that's a, that's a pattern of violence that's seen in a, in a lot of horrific violent crimes. When it's like, when you think about it as, as disturbing and horrible as it is, it, it makes sense that it's it's breaking down that empathy it's breaking down the the human connection for feeling sorry for something because you're i mean an animal obviously feels pain yeah and so you're desensitizing yourself in essence to the pain of another another living organism and so over time i would assume that that maybe makes you less susceptible to feeling you know sorry for an uh, human being or a smarter organism i guess yeah it uh ties back into that level of control too because it's this weaker yeah, that's, it's that's, smaller that's animal, very true you know? yeah it's, but yeah it's uh ted bundy the son of sam killer the boston strangler all engaged in animal cruelty earlier in their lives um here's actually a clip of richard kuklinski the Iceman, talking about abusing animals early on how were you with animals at that age Deadly. Cats, dogs. Cats, dogs. I used to tie two cats' tails together. I drove over a clothesline and watched them rip each other apart. How long does it take? Not long. Did they both die? I don't know. I never stood around to see if the final thing. <clears throat> I would say uh, eventually they both died because they were both pretty well tore up. Got to be noisy. It was quite noisy. What else would you do with cats? Well, we had the incinerator in the projects there. So I threw a cat in the incinerator. Then I threw a book of matches in there. And through the door, I watched the fire get bigger and bigger, and this cat was running around, trying to get away. Eventually, the fire got too big for him, and he didn't run anymore. Pretty disturbing. And uh, here's actually another clip of Jeffrey Dahmer talking about his animal abuse, too. Uh, in ninth grade... Uh, in biology class, we had uh, the usual dissection of uh, fetal pigs. I took the remains of that home and, and kept uh, the skeleton of it. 
and I just started branching out uh, dogs, cats. I suppose it could have turned into a, a, a normal hobby like taxidermy, but it, it didn't. It veered off into, into this. So the majority of most violent prisoners have histories of serious or repeated animal abuse. According to the FBI, animal abuse is highly correlated with interpersonal human-to-human violence. Serial killers often torture or kill small animals from an early age, and men who commit child abuse or domestic violence very frequently harm household pets as well. You know, all the, there's all those shows on Animal Planet of when they go, you know, they go and rescue animals that are abused, malnourished, in unlivable conditions. And I'm just thinking, in my head, I'm thinking, these, these people have one of the, you know, one of the components of the triad. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost like maybe, like those could be some of the most dangerous people, the ones that just sit around and have no empathy for animals and they're just letting animals starve to death and live in these horrific conditions. It's, 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 it's sad to me that, I mean, I'm an animal lover. Same. So it's like, it's just horrible to see what human beings will do to animals. But it's like the fact that it almost seems like we don't take animal abuse as serious as we should. Yeah. Right. Especially when you know the, the McDonald triad or the serial killer trifecta and animal abuse is like the most common denominator between serial killers. It's like, could these people that are, you know, getting in, you know, getting tickets or whatever, or, you know, sometimes they get arrested and spend, do some jail time for animal abuse. But like those could be potential serial killers. Pretty strong. They could eventually yeah. graduate from, animals and and move to to humans and so it's like man maybe we should take that more seriously that whole you know you know i know it's it's kind of an epidemic of of animal abuse and you know people that just have no regard for you know providing animals a a good quality of life and those people are perhaps dangerous but usually they just get a slap on the wrist and then they go right back to doing it right right? yeah And and it's just not really seen as as big of a deal i guess yeah there's clearly a correlation between the two i mean obviously like there's no like we were saying there's no just one big bucket where if you're this then you're that but yeah i mean this seems to be one of the biggest connections to serial killers is animal abuse people who harm animals often go after someone they perceive as weaker many serial killers feel a sense of rejection from their parents or from someone they love there's either a perceived rejection or a real rejection and rather than going after the person who rejected them, they'll redirect that towards someone or something that's weaker, and often that's an animal. It's just a matter of power and control like we were talking about. Some research suggests that there's a, quote, graduation hypothesis where killers start with animals and move to human beings later, which we've seen that in a lot yeah. of episodes we've covered. It's often someone they perceive to be weaker than they are, so that's why so often it's, sex workers children hitchhikers the homeless or the elderly those are always um, basically any minority group right yeah say you know racial minority groups as well you see in many cases as well it's like it's just where whoever you know people aren't going to miss yeah who the police aren't going to pay attention attention to and who's not watching over over them so so wayne williams which they covered him in 
season two of Mindhunter, he was suspected of killing 30 children. Willie Picton confessed to 49 murders. We covered him. Yep. Most of them were indigenous sex workers. The Skid Row stabber killed 11 homeless people. Billy Chamirmir snuck into senior living facilities and was convicted of killing 18 elderly women. He was accused of killing 24. Mm. So those are just, you know, a that's the most horrible of, right there. I mean, yeah. Gosh. Right. Other people think that animal and human abuse starts at the same time, which is called the generalized deviance theory. That's where a kid might hit another kid and then go home and smack their cat. In a study of 45 male prison inmates who were deemed violent offenders, they found that 56% admitted to having committed acts of violence against animals. So over half. It was also found that children who abused animals were more often the victims of parental abuse than children who did not abuse animals. So this is all kind of tying together. Here. Yeah, there's clearly a correlation there. Yeah, I mean, it's not really surprising, but it's, I think the graduation hypothesis is pretty pretty accurate i would say like yeah. you start with something we i mean animals are obviously not as intelligent as us they don't have you know the same abilities and or, or rights as we do so it's like that's a very easy place to start if you're gonna go commit a bunch of of killings so yeah 56 percent though committed acts of violence against animals that's crazy but let's talk about the dark triad and connections to appearance when it comes to serial killers. So the dark triad is a psychological theory of personality. The three malevolent qualities are narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. The three signs of a person with dark triad features includes lying, lacking empathy, and bullying others to achieve their goals. Narcissism is characterized by grandiosity, pride, egotism, and a lack of empathy. Machiavellianism is characterized by the manipulation and exploitation of others, an absence of morality, lack of emotion, and a higher level of self-interest. Psychopathy is characterized by continuous antisocial behavior, impulsivity, selfishness, callous, and unemotional traits, and remorselessness. High scores in these traits have been found to statistically increase a person's likelihood to commit crimes, cause social distress, and create severe problems for organizations especially if they are in leadership positions. They also tend to be less compassionate, agreeable, empathetic, and satisfied with their lives, and less likely to believe they and others are good. Now let's talk about physical appearance. Though there are physical and behavioral cues that have been shown to be associated with the dark triad in research settings, individuals with these traits may excel at hiding their true nature, especially at first. Narcissists, for instance, often appear charming and likable upon first meeting. Some evidence suggests that this may be due to the perception that they have high self-esteem, a socially desirable trait. Narcissism in particular has been found to manifest in people's physical appearance. Narcissists are more likely to dress nicely, be physically attractive, and wear makeup, or dress provocatively. One 2018 study found that grandiose narcissists also tended to have distinctive, well-groomed eyebrows. Well, that ain't me. Mine are bushy and out of control. <laughs> Ted Bundy was known for his appearance, especially his ability to become chameleon-like. His face would change with his mood, and people reported his eyes would go from blue to black. He could have facial discolorations and swelling, and depending on the positioning of his head, he would look different because he had such a distinctive nose. One of his kidnapped victims couldn't even identify him from a mugshot. And I've, I've heard that, you know, a lot of times the physical appearance of someone or 
even if they're not physically attractive, just their personality that they bring kind of disarms people. Makes a lot of sense. So do serial killers have preferred jobs? This was crazy to find. The top three skilled serial killer occupations. One, aircraft machinist or assembler. Two, shoemaker or repair person. Three, automobile upholster. Unique job. Uh, Top three semi-skilled serial killer occupations. One, forestry worker, arborist. Two, truck driver. Three, warehouse manager. We'll get into truck driving actually a little bit later. Top three unskilled serial killer occupations. One, general laborer. Two, hotel porter. Three, gas station attendant, which they don't even really exist anymore. Top three professional government serial killer occupations. One, police or security official. Two, military personnel. Three, religious official. That's scary. Yeah, isn't the that top three professional occupations are all ones that you'd hope you'd be able to trust. Right. right. The police, the military, and your religious leaders. Like that's scary that those are the top three yeah. serial killer occupations. And since we know serial killers are so manipulative, maybe they're attracted to those positions because people are so willing to trust them. Right? Well, and it's also like hiding in plain sight, right? Yeah, true. It's, it's kind of like nobody will ever suspect that the sheriff is the one doing the murders, right? Right, yeah. Which is so, is is actually really interesting to me because the more cases I cover, especially cases where they're unsolved and there's just, and when you look at the investigations, like the police aren't doing anything and there's no movement and there's also corruption within the police departments, it really makes me wonder how many, if there are 200 serial killers in the United States today, how many of them are in the police departments that like that that's frightening to think about and that's a occupation where you can essentially kill someone and get away with it right well you would know how wouldn't you yeah and then you have plenty of ways to plant evidence and i mean arrest the wrong people yeah lots of power in those positions as well absolutely and uh yeah speaking of a police officer the alleged golden state killer joseph d'angelo he actually held down three of these jobs over the course of his lifetime. So one was police officer, two was military personnel because he was in the Navy, and he was a truck driver. And many of the jobs that were listed above, they were once common and accessible to killers in, let's say, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but a lot of those are now gone. Like Shoemaker? I, yeah, that's what I was going to say. How many of us shoemaker? are getting our shoes repaired? Yeah, come on. <laughs> not any of us I yeah think. or gas station attendant those i think only in new jersey they still exist or even like automobile upholster or yeah you know like that's nobody does nobody's that doing that was like no. going to get their seats in their car redone or yeah fixed like that doesn't happen forestry worker i mean yeah pretty rare now Serial killers once used the guise of their employment to stalk and acquire specific victims that's kind of the old school way of doing yep, it yep now there are blurred occupational recreational categories involving both online and offline dimensions. So it's kind of this new serial killer paradigm that has forced them to adjust as these more common jobs disappear. More people, you know, working from home or everything's digitized. There's less person-to-person interaction. So the game has changed a little bit. Well, there's um, not. I feel like there's not as much physical stalking of victims as there is online stalking that maybe turns into physical stalking, but I think it's really the internet that's created 
you know, the ability to be anonymous. Yeah. And you can really, I mean, with followers and, you know, all these social media accounts, it's, there's no way to really know if you're being stalked by, I mean, you have all these followers, so, you know, everybody's following you, but could you have a stalker or somebody like a serial killer stalking your online presence in order to gain access to you or catfish you or there, I mean, there's so many ways to manipulate technology to get close to your potential victim. Right. And that just wasn't an outlet. No, you used to have to go to the, you know, go to the local club where that person hung out or you'd hang out by their place of work and follow them home. And I know like BTK, he did that a lot of like follow people home and stuff and, and figure out where they live, find out the routine when they leave the house, come home. Are they alone? Things like that. And really did the like classic, but now it's like everybody and their brothers got a ring doorbell and a camera on their house. It's like, that old 70s, 80s serial killer stalking is almost impossible. I mean, it's there's so many cameras around that's just you couldn't get away with that, which, again, I'm getting ahead here talking about where all the serial killers gone. Yeah, but we'll dive into that for sure. But technology, obviously, I think really is at the forefront of that paradigm shift, right? Right. I find this next list actually hilarious because we're all on here. It's the top 10 occupations of psychopaths mm. according to an oxford university psychologist so here number one josh ceo <laughs> or business executive number two lawyer all of us for number three media personalities yep four salesperson five surgeon which is surprising Number six, journalist or news anchor definitely correct you can kind of yeah. see that a little bit uh Seven police officer that mm. still hasn't changed from back then. Eight religious official again, not really surprising. Danny nine chef. Hey, number nine. Oh, he <laughs> knows all so, chefs are psychopaths. So, <laughs> I look just, at Gordon Ramsay, dude. That dude's a total psychopath. Like. Oh, <laughs> and that's why I love him. Uh, I then I just want to oh and ten miscellaneous civil servant like military. You got to be a psycho to work for the government, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just want to point out that you two are on here twice. I'm only on here once. So, so if you add the two together, that means you're more of a psychopath than I am. <laughs> Actually, dude, we all are psychopaths. Oh, yeah, so for sure. We might as well just like board up the door and like <laughs> keep ourselves locked up. That it, it, I mean, a lot of it makes sense because if you go back to the traits of what a psychopath is, like a lot of those things, yeah, easily fit into these. I mean, you think about there's commonalities between all of these, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and we were just covering like narcissism and its connection to physical appearance, and I can obviously that media personality, our huge egos, salespersons, yeah. you know, news anchors, even lawyers, you know, they have to present themselves a certain yep. way. With uh, surgeons, you actually have a lack of empathy. Well, you really? kind of have to. Yeah, in case you lose a patient, you have to not. I mean, it's not. It's it sounds kind of sad to say, but it sounds you, cold. You to can't be like, care, right? Because you have to keep going and keep working on the next person. And you can't let it get to you and just weigh on you. Yeah, for that's a great months. point. That's, yeah, it's very true though. Like it'd be. I mean, would you want an emotionally unstable surgeon working on you who maybe like earlier that morning had a rough surgery? They lost the patient. They're all distraught and now they got to cut you open and, yeah, that'd be and terrible you'd be like uh can you get somebody else right but that's the absolute true fact like you got to be kind of explains doctors too but i'm like some of these 
some of these PCP, these primary care physicians that don't do surgery. I'm like, you guys are just assholes. Dude. <laughs> like, you have no excuse. You're over here just like collecting the check and yeah. no offense to any PCPs out there, but I've had a few very, very terrible doctors that um, I'm just like, yeah, do you have any empathy in there at all? Like, dude, you don't feel bad for our situation at all. And I think that kind of goes back to the difference between like bedside manner and actual empathy. Yes. Cause like, yeah. I feel like a lot of those doctors, yeah, they probably don't care. Like they're, you're like the 300th person they've seen today, right? but you need to act like you care. Right. Bedside manner is the right, right term for that. They need yeah. to have better bedside manner. Like yeah. as a doctor, it's just, it's like customer service, right? You yeah. gotta like give some good customer. Like we're still your customer. Yeah. At Pretend you care about my life. You yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. Even if you don't really care about it, that's okay. But if you make me feel good while I'm there, then it's all good. Right. right. We feel okay. Uh, my mother's a medical doctor, so watch it. Hey, she actually she's probably cares. great. Yeah, she's <laughs> the best one out there. Shout out Austin's mom. There, but that's the thing. There, there are, I think some doctors just like either get burnt out or they see way too many people, and so they just don't have the ability to like give everybody that same treatment. But then there's like yeah. absolutely amazing healthcare professionals out there. I've met many of them that are just like blow me away. I'm like, how are you? are you literally an angel yeah. from heaven like you are an amazing individual it's nice to come across nurses those. shout out nurses like like austin's mom most nurses yeah, <laughs> yeah. Your, your mom's angel an yeah. angel seriously like i have the utmost respect for nurses i love nurses like the birth of my my child mm, nurses were the best yeah i'm glad they came they made through. It so like they were better than the doctor the doctor just comes in to catch the baby and then they leave like the nurses do all the work like yeah so nurses are are solid for sure yeah but then again you know if your profession is on this list doesn't necessarily mean anything no. except for number three media no look personality. at elon musk great guy yeah, yeah. <laughs> great guy. definitely <laughs> not a psychopath right? yeah and all three Mark zuckerberg definitely not media personalities right here in this room we all know that we are psychopaths and that's okay but we don't do anything about it we keep our we keep ourselves in check you got to keep your shit together yes. yeah keep it together don't let it out. <laughs> you know, scream into your pillow at night if you yeah. need to. Is that what you do? Is that how you get through it? Yeah. We all have our vices. That's all I'll say. But I think all of us, no matter what occupation, deal with the struggles of, of feeling psychopathic at times, right? Like, For sure. It's just crazy to be alive. So, But this leads us to one of the most important questions we're going to look at today. And that is, where did all the serial killers go? The number of serial killers has plunged by 85% in three decades. The FBI says that serial killers account for less than 1% of all killings. Why is that? Here's some possible reasons. Violent offenders have long prison sentences and rarely get parole. Which I think is pretty accurate because, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, a lot of times they would let let these guys out right or they would get them on other crimes and then wouldn't connect the other crimes they did and so they would just do time for the simpler or lesser crime then they get back out kill some more right go back to jail for their speeding ticket and then get it out again <laughs> yeah you know i think that's part of it for sure and especially repeat offenders yes. repeat violent offenders. that has changed a lot of yeah. like you know there's a three strike rule you know for felonies and things like that and and it seems like nowadays sentencing is just a lot stricter like even those that do like second degree homicide 
one person are getting life sentences. Right. You know, it's it's definitely gotten a lot stricter. And again, it depends on where you're tried, what state you're tried in and all that. But I think more importantly, it's cultural and technological shifts. Like we were talking about earlier, less hitchhiking. I mean, I remember a day where I'd see hitchhikers quite a bit. Yeah. You know, you'd see people on the side of the road, thumbs up. And I think I maybe have given... I've definitely, in my younger teen years, gave a few hitchhikers a ride. Really? Yeah. And I've probably had a few of them lie to me about situations or like, I had one that was definitely kind of sketched me out a little bit. His story didn't really make sense. But then he told me he was a veteran and he like showed me his veteran's ID and he was like, oh my, he was like at a gas station and his family, he said his family was like stranded on the side of the road, like miles away. And I was like, how the fuck did you get here then? But he was like, I need some money and I need you to drop me off over here. And I was like, it just didn't make sense. But I was like, he seems all right. Sounds like he was lying, but that doesn't mean he had like malicious intent. Yeah. Maybe he just really desperately needed to get somewhere. And he's like, probably the easiest way is just making up a story. And he was like it. so insistent on like showing me his ID too. He was like, see, I'm that's, legit. That's kind of how legit. you know they're lying a little bit. And right? I was like, oh, okay. Veterans yeah. ID probably didn't fake that. So, <laughs> yeah. so I ended up giving him a ride and. I think I emptied my wallet for him too. But I was I was also like sometimes in those situations you almost want to be like more cooperative and not I was thinking, well, this could escalate and what if he punches me and takes my wallet and runs or something, you know what right. I mean? Like it could go south here. But it is always scary to like get some random person in your car and that's a yeah. scary yeah. situation, I feel like. But you did live to tell the tale. Oh man, such a dangerous tale I lived there. <laughs> But yeah, less hitchhiking, more helicopter parents like myself, apparently. <laughs> but biggest thing is like there's fucking cameras everywhere. Big brother. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. We're in a big brother world. Like, For real. Unless you live like in the boonies or something like if you live anywhere in the suburbs or city, like chances are you're on somebody's camera every day. Yeah. Being watched. <laughs> there's cameras in, in this office. I watch all of you every day i knew it <laughs> even when you go home just kidding. <laughs> don't do that but i have cameras at my house don't come to my house because i got cameras <laughs> inside and outside nice. i don't fuck around nice. i know who's who's around my house because it's it's honestly like the best form of security you can have right is like seeing what's around you and it's evidence it's physical evidence that you can capture and hopefully if something were to ever happen it would lead to catching those individuals yeah it's something deterrent. went down at your house it would be like look i have evidence this is clearly a 6-2 white male with a mullet yeah i caught him at my residence and i work with him too <laughs> <laughs> his name is actually austin <laughs> here's his address let me pull up his uh paycheck here real quick yeah. no but cameras 100 are the biggest deterrent for crime i believe it 100 i think more than anything else oh there was this city i am blanking on where it is uh, basically they made it littering and like throwing your gum around illegal and they just have cameras on every single street corner sounds like new york city and they <laughs> the place and is blanketed they, in they cameras. Were, yeah seriously but they they essentially got rid of littering there's like no more gum chewing they put cameras everywhere and I don't know if I agree with that though. See, that's, that's such a dangerous. I think there is like a but, line you cross for yeah. privacy, and but it has made it very difficult for serial killers to operate the way that they did in the '60s, '70s, '80s because 
there, you know, you could stalk somebody like we were talking about and not ever get picked up by anybody. Right. Someone might have, you know, it, it'd just be, there was not like this photo video evidence that could be presented to the police to help find somebody be like, they'd go and question you and be like, Oh, what'd you see? And you're like, Oh, I saw this dark figure. I think he was like six, you know, like imagine like the descriptions were just so much look or less accurate than they are now. Cause now yeah. we can be like, Oh yeah, we got them literally on all you got to do to see that this is true. Go on next door, baby. Like they're yeah. constant, like people putting photos, this, this sketchy individual was at my house yeah. and you know, they're blasting their picture everywhere. It's like, it'd be very difficult for a serial killer to operate in the way that they do now. I mean, the one case that I, I, I go back to when thinking about this is the, the Idaho murders, the, the recent case that happened with uh, Brian Koberger. That's where they caught him leaving his garage. Yeah. 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 I remember that. Yeah. 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 They ended up like, they, they were able to like follow, they like followed him all the way as he left Idaho to go home. Oh, the East yeah, Coast yeah, that and, one, yep. yeah. So like, but he murdered four uh, college students with a knife. Yeah. Like went into, the, went in there, then left. Kendall and, just covered that, didn't she? Yeah. 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 I, I'm not super well versed on it, so I apologize if I'm getting any details wrong, but it, it he is also being looked at for a number of other unsolved crimes, potentially homicides as well. So it's, it's, there's a possibility Brian Koberger could be a serial killer. I mean, he obviously murdered four people, but separate instances of killing others. Right. And what's interesting about Brian Koberger is that when you look at him and you look at the the dark triad and you look at the social or the serial killer trifecta, he, he fits in there perfectly. Yeah. He's, he was literally a PhD uh, student in criminology. He was literally studying this. Like he, he did, uh, he did a number of like research projects on serial killers and stuff. Like he was wow. deep into this and clearly he was using his knowledge to his abilities. And luckily because of technology and how well the police were able to kind of track him down and, and quickly, you know, it, it didn't continue to go on or he wasn't able to kind of go on the run. And that's the thing too, is like you commit a, homicide now and the police know about it like you're gonna get caught yeah for it's sure. very difficult to just like disappear and completely go off the radar because like when you when i think about someone like dean coral and stuff like people would see him driving around in his van and it's just like it was a different you know people just wouldn't say things and they wouldn't like report things as much as they do now now if anybody sees anything they're like i'm calling 911 <laughs> yeah, right because i thought this person did that and yeah and it might be too much so because sometimes, you know, police take forever to get to get to things. But it is much harder to to pull off murders like you could in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And, you know, thank God they got Brian Koberger quickly because who knows what else he would have done. But I'm very interested to see if he actually ends up getting tied to some other unsolved homicides because he would be kind of the first serial killer in recent history. With like a big profile yeah, around yeah, him. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm trying to think like there hasn't, since like the Golden State Killer was caught. Yeah. He was I'm like the to... last big one. But he wasn't, he was dormant. I mean, he wasn't actually like killing for a long, he was just living his life. Yeah. When they I'm caught him. To, I'm trying to think of any like big modern ones. Well, and any come to mind. In DNA. Obviously, that was like one of the biggest things with serial Huge. killers is that they did not have the DNA technology that we do now. And 
had they had the technology, they would have solved many so of these many. cases yeah. that are both unsolved and solved to this day much quicker if they could collect DNA, test it, do all of the genealogy stuff that we do now and be able to actually trace it back to people and have the databases and everything. That would help quite a bit. But strange enough, as serial killers have declined, so have solved murder cases. In 1965, the homicide clearance rate was 91%. In 2017, it was only 61.6%. That's what's wild. And is why is that? Yeah, like two out of three are being solved out here. So some experts believe that serial killers are responsible for many of the unsolved cases. And there are about 2,100 unidentified serial killers out there. Some think there are more like even 3,000 or 4,000. So for example, Samuel Little, a lesser known serial killer, was linked to 60 homicides, but he claims he killed 33 more. Which, does this account for the number of unsolved cases? Like, Because almost every serial killer is like, how many of them have told us absolutely everything? and Or do they remember everything that they've done? And there's many of them that have confirmed killings, but then there's like, well, it could be up to 100. You know, we don't even know. Yeah, and it also asks the question like, Okay, if the homicide clearance rate was 91%, maybe it was only that high because there were only so many crimes reported. Yeah. And if you tie that back to living in a surveillance state, it's kind of like maybe now we're more aware of crimes happening, but less can be solved. It doesn't necessarily mean that there are more or less serial killers out there, but it does raise the question, are they just getting smarter? Yeah. I think increased expertise is absolutely a thing. I also think it's priorities that the police have. And oftentimes, like police, I mean, ever since the, you know, it's interesting how sort of all the, you know, the age of serial killers and the war on drugs all kind of, you know, unfolded around the same time. And then police seem to switch a lot of their focus to the war on drugs. And well, violent crime continued to rise. And you know, there seem to be, you know, not as much resources going to solving murders. And so, and I think that's still in play to this day. I think a lot of police departments just don't have the right priorities. I think a lot of them focus on the wrong things. And homicide cases just don't have enough resources to them. There's so many of them. That there's just not enough trained individuals to solve those cases. And it's all, all, also harder to solve them now because people are smarter and and maybe it's because they know more about the process they know more about how to hide the, i mean we have the internet and how many killers go and google stuff on the internet how do i clean up a crime scene how do i clean up blood how do i make sure i don't leave dna on stuff and so i think it's like a multi another multi-layered answer right? yeah like they're smarter police are not necessarily dumber but there's less of them for the amount of crime that there is and there's just more people on the planet. I mean, our population continues to rise. So obviously, there's just more people, more crime. And I mean, you look at police in, in many areas and they're understaffed, undertrained. You know, they don't have the, I mean, if you look at the entry level for a police officer, it's very, very low. And pay is very, very low. And so I think a lot of that factors into it as well. Like, Imagine if you had, you know, all these criminologists 
that were also cops and detectives and had this extensive education and background and experience in in the mind of a in psychology of a criminal and they were all working in police departments around us well they'd have to be paid a lot more which they don't have the budget for that but would the crime rate be different would the you know homicide you know rates as far as cases solved be higher or not i think it would be higher same i agree it's just a multi-layered yeah more competent detectives for sure which obviously there's other reasons for why unsolved cases have continued to rise there's growing social isolation which we were kind of talking about the opposite of that earlier but there's also even with the age of technology and the internet it's also easier to isolate yourself yeah because you can get everything from your phone yeah i mean we all do this we all go out in public and rather than chat it up with people in public we'll be on our phone right like First thing I do when I go into an elevator is look down at my phone. Like nobody's like making eye contact. Like, I mean, some people do. Some people are still like, hey, how's it going? You know, whatever. But like most of us, I would say our phone is that it's like a pacifier. Right. Yeah. It's literally like an adult pacifier. It's like, give me my binky right now. Yeah. Right. It's also like a passive aggressive way to maybe or maybe not, but just to tell people like, don't talk to me. Yeah, you it's know, like a signal. It's like, like I'm on my phone, so don't even try. To, yeah, like, it's, it's kind of like you can aus- you can isolate yourself outside. Yeah, you know, even in public. Yeah, you can be surrounded by people, but yet be so isolated. Yeah, that's crazy. That's that's the world we're in. Greater geographic mobility. It's a lot harder to connect the dots across different jurisdictions, and serial killers often kill complete strangers. And it's a lot easier to get around these days. I mean, you can pop around different places much faster and if you know you know how to do it and i said we'd bring back uh one of the professions was uh truck drivers yeah. i said that's still kind of relevant today because supposedly long-haul truck driving is a perfect profession for serial killing especially you're crossing state lines they found like 750 victims have appeared near highways with 450 suspects most of them truck drivers so if you think of that as a profession yeah literally perfect for yeah serial killing yeah we were we were just talking about this on mile higher uh when talking about a um uh, missing murdered indigenous women it's like a huge epidemic canada united states all over the place and what you find is a lot of these indigenous women you know live on reservations or near reservations and where are these reservations located near interstate highways where and they're often small towns and there's truck stops and people coming through and women are just they disappear and then they're found dead or they're never found at all yeah and it's at such a high level that you're like something's going on here there's just something very wrong about this it doesn't make any sense and i just i'm like there's got it obviously there's easy they're easy targets i mean they're they're a minority and the police definitely don't care about them and you know if you're a serial killer and you're a truck driver you know that's like a perfect opportunity for you to drive through do that do the crime and then leave and they'll never they'll never connect it especially and and especially if you understand dna and everything else like it's just it's it's another multi-layered issue but yeah i absolutely think the serial killers are probably a number of them are truck drivers or in that industry seems like it would line up perfectly with that profession 
just because you are so transient and moving across state lines and jurisdictions, it's much harder to track somebody that way even today. Yeah. Even with all the databases that we have and stuff, if you've never been caught, then you're not going to show up. Right. And yeah, and crimes are harder to connect in different geographical areas. That's just how it goes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that leads us to the big one. Can serial killers be rehabilitated? Well, we don't even really have an answer here, but we're going to try and dig into this one. So serial killers prioritize rewards in decision-making. Consequences are often little or no value to serial killers. Research suggests that brains and neuronal activity of people with psychopathy are different from those of typical people. Makes sense. In the future, drugs might be able to rehabilitate psychopaths by controlling neurons in specific brain regions. Unfortunately, we don't really have that today. And the problem is most convicted serial killers will never get out of prison, so we have no way to track the data of if they're actually rehabilitated. Some of the released serial killers were deemed, quote, insane or an, quote, unwilling accomplice, so there's basically no evidence of a serial killer really truly being rehabilitated being released and then going back and living a quiet life it's it's just one it doesn't happen and two it's just very rare to it'd, to be, come a, across. it'd be a big chance to take yeah exactly imagine no one if would you did do that, that and they went out and killed more people yeah that people would be up in arms that would so oh, yeah. most of the time like we were saying especially repeat violent offenders it's very hard to see the light of day ever again but we do have some examples of serial killers being released. Um, there was a 1968 case of Mary Bell, an 11-year-old who strangled a three-year-old boy and a four-year-old boy. So she was only 11 years old at the time, still a minor. And she did it, quote, solely for the pleasure and excitement of killing. She was given a life sentence and was described as having a, quote, psychopathic disorder. In 1980, when she was 23, she was released. Her release was rough at first, but she eventually settled into life outside of prison. She changed her name three times and a daughter in 1984 and became a grandmother in 2009. An unnamed source said that she still felt remorse for her crimes. She has been happy at times, but she once said she was, quote, imprisoned by guilt and remorse. So one of the things I'm thinking of in this particular case is the fact that she is 11 years old. She's 11, right? So very, very young. And that's another very controversial subject is like, A, should children be tried as adults? Should she have ever received a life sentence, even, you know, in these circumstances? Or at this young of an age, is there still a chance of for them to lead a, a positive life and you know, do good. Yeah. Like, are they, is that like, you know, it, that's it for I, them. I do think at 11 years old, you're much more malleable. You're, you're not really set in stone by that age. No. So I do think there's way more of a chance for an 11 year old who did something horrific to come back and be rehabilitated. What do you think, Daniel? No. Simple. few words. No. Um, <laughs> Yes, she was 11 years old at the time and you are still a child. And even just from my experience of growing up, you are complete. You can be a completely different person from when you are as a kid. But I don't think that 
this per, even being 11 years old the fact that they strangled a three and a four-year-old boy solely for the pleasure and excitement of killing that person regardless of age does not belong in civilized society anymore now whether they should spend the rest of their life in prison i don't know but they should be separated from society for the rest of their life they took the lives of two innocent people they shouldn't be able to live the rest of their life in any way shape or form you think more so just for the sake of the victim's family or just because you yes. don't actually think that they can return i think at, i think maybe at 11 you could be rehabilitated by the time you're you know in your mid-20s but i also don't think that's a chance worth taking especially since in this case they did it solely for the pleasure and excitement of doing it yeah. i think that that point that person is too far gone it's not worth the risk i know it's harsh but so is strangling children i mean well yeah i mean you rob two kids of having a full life yeah. i mean who knows what what they would have done and who they would have been yeah yeah but, I, but, I i tend to agree with you and i think i think it's difficult because obviously at 11 years old like you said there's still opportunity to you're not fully developed yet. i think once you get to hit like 15 16 like your your views are kind of kind of more developed you're able to think you know you're much more mature uh, both mentally and physically that uh, I would have a, you know, much larger issue at that age. But I agree. I think, I think there's a, a big risk in allowing somebody like this just free in society. Like if anything, you know, do I think they should be locked in a cell 23 hours a day and, you know, have this, you know, despite what they did, they were a kid I think could they somehow contribute to society in a way that doesn't put others at risk? Yeah, right. and that's what's difficult is like if you look at it from through well, the lens of our she did do that right right she went on and had a kid had grandchildren and so this is a case where like that actually it, and that's occur. the thing and that's the thing is like this is one case of where right, it worked right, out for right. the better and it's like if we were to just base everything off this one case yeah we might have gotten lucky this time but how many more times are we going to get lucky with right. somebody, you know, somebody in a similar circumstance? And I think that's what you're saying is like the risk. If we were to just be like, Oh yeah, if you're under, you know, under 13 years old and you kill somebody, then, you know, you'll do some time for it, but eventually you'll get out and be able to just go back to normal society and, and be fine. But I think it's alarming that they did it for pleasure and excitement. Cause I mean, to me, that's like a deeper psychological issue that might be something you know, I don't, we don't know the full history of the individuals. So we don't know what they're, you know, what they went through earlier on in their life, but it seems that if they're already thinking this way by 11 years old, right. what are the chances that this mindset doesn't return at some point in their life or they revert to it? Cause it's kind of the mindset of a serial killer. So it's like, will that, and maybe she did kind of deal with that mentally, just never said anything about it. But I feel like that's always a possibility. So do you take that risk just so that this one individual who did murder two people is able to live somewhat of a normal life or do you just play it safe and say sorry you know you did what you did i do agree that's a huge gamble mm -hmm. i i wouldn't even i don't even necessarily agree that this happened but it did happen and she did like it's just a it's just a one case but it, she did come out of it right and she did go on to live a normal life I but yeah i, I wouldn't it, personally take that gamble of releasing someone like that i wish that in this country we had I wish our, our criminal justice system was different. I wish the way that we housed inmates was different because if you look at other countries um, in Europe, like Norway, Sweden, and some of these other 
um, Scandinavian nations and things like that. And you look at how convicted killers and oftentimes adults are treated and how they live. And that's, what's hard is like, it's easy to be like, you know, none of them de- deserve to, to ever have a happy moment ever again. And that's where I'm like, well, then why you know, is there a purpose in keeping them alive at that point? If you're just going to deprive them of, of any, like, you know, at what point is it inhumane to, to house inmates, even killers in these horrible conditions and, you know, just for years and years and years, it costs money. And, you know, there's no, nothing redeeming happening. There's no rehabilitating coming out of it. And even those that are in prison for nonviolent crimes are experiencing the same thing as those who are violent criminals. And that's where it's so difficult is it's like, there's no in between. There's no, I mean, obviously there's different levels of prisons. Some are better than others. And, you know, obviously there's, there's unique circumstances in that, but like you look at Norway or somewhere and they've got, I mean, they let convicted killers like cook with knives Mm -hmm. and they seem to be perfectly fine. Like they seem like they're re actually rehabilitating. Mm -hmm. And when you see evidence like that and you see that, Oh wow. Like they did do these horrible things, but they're still, they're in protective, you know, they're in a protective custody. So they're not out in public, Mm -hmm. but they're not completely deprived of everything you know, all the experience, yeah, their humanity and all the experiences that you have as, as a, as a human being. And, you know, they can cook food, they have their own room and they do, and they seem like mentally to be doing a lot better than someone in a similar case in our country is like absolutely opposite situation. So I think environment and the way that you treat them is, is a big deal and can lead to better results. But it's very difficult because I think we have a we have this different view in America of criminals too. Because it's like by allowing the killer to have his own room, play Xbox, and cook meals, and seemingly he's still in jail or prison, is that fair to the victims? Like I think our mentality as Americans, especially around victims and victims of violent crime, is like we are much just much harsher and more supportive of the victims in in some ways than in other countries where they kind of look at it a little bit differently from us. And I think it's because of our history and how our criminal justice system has evolved and things like that. Cause it's like, it's so different. It's polar opposite. Yeah. Why is that? I also think us Americans have like a unhealthy obsession with revenge too, where it's like, if this guy did this, you know, no, this guy will never see the light of day again. We put him in a hole for some cases. I totally agree. That that's what we should do. But sometimes I think it's a bit too much on that end. Um, have you guys ever heard of the podcast ear hustle? I've heard of it. Yeah. It's a really cool podcast. Basically um, it's run by a prisoner uh, that eventually got out, but it's the, it's his co-host and then a, a prisoner. And it's basically, they just go around and interview prisoners inside this, facility i think it's san quentin i want to say i haven't listened to it a few years but if you're ever interested in just listening about prisoner life and what they do and who they are it's a really insightful uh and i think it we like to dehumanize prisoners a lot of the time especially violent offenders but yeah i don't know i just fundamentally think people can change and i I wouldn't necessarily take certain gambles and just be like, Hey, everyone go free and whatever. But I do think that the American prison system is created to dehumanize people and disconnect us from who's actually behind the bars. 
Yeah. So that's a really good podcast. If you guys, if any of our listeners want to check that out and kind of just, I don't, they're playing D and D they're painting like they're, you know, these are like real people yeah, who are yeah. functioning just behind bars. I, I just try and remember that when I think about prisoners, cause we sometimes just disconnect them from who we are as people. And, yeah. Well, and, and we don't know. I mean, they're like, we always bring up, there's always a chance that they're, they're not in there because they're guilty they're in there because they just happen to be yeah they were the ones that got caught or they got framed for it i mean there's a lot of injustice of of prisoners and things like that and some in in some of those situations it's like we don't always know the circumstances of of the violent offenders it's it's just it's difficult because then you start getting into a moral issue and things like that but then you look at it morally and and even from a religious perspective and it's like well according to pretty much all the religions like forgiveness is is like at the forefront of right of of good deeds that you can do as a human being and forgive your enemy right yeah and like you often see even in some of the most heinous crimes ever committed like the families of the loved ones end up forgiving the killer because it is more healing for them to let go of that anger and, and hatred and a lot of prisons run those programs too. And I'm pretty sure they talk about it in your hustle where they bring in family and they get to kind of just dish things out and apologize and talk about things. I think that can be powerful, you know? And I think a lot of those situations are more for people that didn't commit premeditated murder. What I mean, it was more yeah, just an yeah. in the moment kind of thing right? where right. they're not, they weren't, it was, it was a reaction instead of a planned attack. Yeah. Serial killers yeah. will never be a part of that program. And exactly. Yeah. So I think we're kind of getting away from the serial killer aspect True. more just a blanket of yes, uh, absolutely. violent crime. Yes. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Cause yeah, we did get way off of from we did. like serial killers. You're too far gone. There is no hope for a serial killer. Cause even like the examples that, you know, you put in here. Yeah. Here we could do got, another one. Here's a, here's a brutal one. 1973, David McGreevy. This was in the UK. He brutally murdered three children, ages two, four, and nine. And he impaled the bodies on a neighbor's fence post. Supposedly he killed them because they wouldn't stop crying. He was later released on parole in June 2019. A psychiatrist confirmed that he was no longer a threat to the public, defending, quote, his improved self-control and the fact that Mr. McGreevy has learned to remain calm in stressful situations, end quote. He's now free to live in the UK under strict conditions. It's been almost four years. And as far as we know, he hasn't killed anyone since. Uh, in 2007, Somkid Pumpuang was dubbed the, quote, Jack the Ripper of Thailand for killing five women in cold blood. His victims were all nightclub entertainers and masseuses. He was sentenced to life, but then released early from prison as he was considered a, quote, model prisoner. Just seven months after his release, he murdered a hotel maid. He had managed to start a relationship with her by telling her he was a lawyer. She allowed him to move into her apartment, and he killed her in cold blood. He was finally rearrested after two students recognized him on a train, and now he'll most likely stay behind bars for the rest of his life. So in cases like that, people, you know, that's kind of what we think will happen. See, that, and that's the thing is, like, how do you analyze each of those cases? Yeah. You can't even analyze them the same. Right. Yeah. They're like, two oh, totally well, different. You know, everybody deserves the same chance. Well, you, if you take that chance, you're probably going to lose more often than not. So it's like, it's it's difficult because one individual might be okay, but then the next three are going to go out and 
do the shit all over again. So yeah. it's like, I, I think with especially, you know, multi murder, mass homicide, serial killers, I just don't think you take that chance. Like you just, you just can't. Yeah. Cause you just, there's always that chance. I mean, and you, and just think about what kind of trauma that caused, like the trauma created from killing people yeah, and multiple people, especially it's like that. I'm sure that's not, you don't just shake that off and then go back to living normal normally. Yeah. I mean, that's always going to be with you. And, and could that lead you, you know, down a, a path where you, do the same thing over and over again. So it might be a question we literally can't answer. I don't think like, it is to yeah. be rehabilitated because yeah, we would just never as a society want to take that chance of releasing someone to even begin to understand if they ever can be rehabilitated. So yeah. Well, and it's like a good point. our episode on Vince Lee and the Greyhound bus mm -hmm. and the fact that the, the Canadian government's like, Oh yeah, we rehabilitated him. He's good to go. And this guy was like, you know, he murdered this, um, poor young man and cold blood and did a, you know, completely, I mean, completely tore him apart pretty much. And it was mental illness is what was deemed the, the cause of all of it. And, you know, they rehabilitated him with medication and therapy. And then he went back, you know, he's out living his life after that. And it's just, it, it's difficult because a, a lot of you, you know, were a little upset with our opinions on that. And we're like, well, you know, mental health is a different as a whole different thing and that's what's difficult is some of you know some of these cases are due to mental health issues and you know maybe you treat that differently than from somebody who has no history of mental health issues who's just a brutal killer but then it's like how do you know it's like how do you know either way if they yeah. truly have mental health issues versus they're just evil or or something like that it's yeah it's it's very complex and i don't think there is a an answer for it but i think as far as serial killers go i don't think they can be rehabilitated yeah i would go i would lean no on that as well and even if you think they were it's probably just not worth the risk yeah yeah it's just it's really not i mean in the public outrage i mean it would be way worse to take that chance i mean what would be the benefits to that for anybody other than the serial killer right zero yeah. there are none yeah. to that so it's like why do it in the first place and it makes sense why they i'm glad they don't i mean that'd be horrific if because it would happen again and all it would take is for that one one time for it to happen and then it'd be all over again and be like yeah. screw even locking them up we should just eliminate them like right bring the death penalty back for all serial killers and just you know remove them from the earth permanently there's just so many questions we won't have answers to definitively and like i was saying you know there's no clear-cut definition of what is a serial killer it's kind of this vast multifaceted topic that it's is, a largely undiscovered field i guess to some, some extent like like you mentioned earlier i think most of what we know about serial killers comes from the interviews we've conducted with them right yeah you know it's not like we've ever been it's not like we've sat back and been able to see the serial killer in the wild so to speak that's kind of a weird way to say it but like you know what i mean out there doing their thing without intervening and actually seeing how they go about and do things oftentimes it's just 
secondhand, right? It's like, it's either secondhand or it's them recalling memories later on. And it's like, how accurate are those stories? How accurate are those depictions of what they did? I mean, I'm, I presume they're pretty accurate because I can imagine it's their head is just, I mean, can imagine the images and things that run through their head all the time. But at the same time, like when we watch some of those interviews with Jeffrey Dahmer, especially and Ed Kemper, I just have to wonder, I'm like, how much of what they're saying is actually true? Yeah. And how much of it is them after the fact, now that they're in prison and there's nothing else they can do, that they're just trying to sort of like save face with society and be like, well, I know I'm a fucked up person, but you know, there's kind of logical reasons for why I did what I did and here they are. Or is there truth to those things? Like, and, and I think it's such a blend and it's so hard to, hard to say. I don't think you can say definitively. Yeah. And like, especially Ed Kemper where it's like, okay, if a lot of his rage and revenge was circled around his mother, well, we can't even interview his mother. She's gone now. right? Right. So we really don't have any definitive proof. We can't even necessarily verify all the things that he was saying about his childhood and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, we do know that it, those who like, I'm thinking of children of serial killers of how hard it is to reconcile that, you know, your one image is your father and maybe you did have some good memories with them and they seem completely normal to you. But then in actuality, they're, these complete monsters and I feel, I honestly feel absolutely horrible for, for not only victims and their families of serial killers, but the families of the serial killer themselves, because I mean, completely destroys the family. Yeah. The, The legacy of that family, the children, I don't even know how you would wrap your head around. No, just your distortion of reality at that point would be, ridiculous if like uh, just imagine if your parent one day it was found out some horrific secret about them that you had no idea that had been going on for decades and decades you know i just i would lose the ability to trust in general anything right yeah it's yeah serial killers are i mean it's it's this mysterious like subgenre of of true crime that i think will never leave our minds like it'll never this this interest and intrigue of like learning about them and knowing what they did is like i don't think will ever go away i mean as long as there are serial killers i think people will be interested in learning about them and trying to understand because it's like it's it's really this it's almost like bigger than life itself it almost seems like this movie like thing it's like hard to wrap your head around the fact that this is real actually really happened or is happening i mean i keep going back that there are 200 serial killers in the united states right now and maybe more yeah based on statistics and if that's any of that's true that's that's pretty terrifying to think about but it's like do we all live in fear of of a serial killer like coming after us no mo- well, most of us just live our lives and kind of push it i know once we leave this room we kind of like all right we gotta 
de-stress, cleanse yeah. the mind and yeah, Danny and I go crack a million jokes to each other to, yeah. to get happy again. Yeah. Exactly. Because, yeah, I mean, nobody wants to live in constant fear of of something. But I do think there are benefits to learning about it. And just, you know, knowledge is power, I feel like. So the more yeah. you know, you know, you never know. You might help you out in a situation or give you a little piece of advice that you might not, you know, otherwise have. That's ultimately why I'm... I listen to it. I mean, there's not really another redeeming qualities of learning about what serial killers do, especially when they show up in your dreams. And yeah. I mean, I've been chased many a times by a killer in my dreams. Oh yeah. And those are some of my uh, most frightening dreams that I have. And I can, I always get away, but they're always kind of like right there. You know what I mean? What and I never mean? can see what they look like either. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, do you know what they look like? No, they never have like a face, which is weird. They're always like just dark. So they may not even be, human killers i mean you guys know my uh my beef with demons oh man It'd just be a bunch <laughs> of demons running after me but but yeah with with that being said we could go i mean we we're already got almost three hours deep into the serial killer Whew. episode you could talk hours on this topic yeah it would be great to one day be able to get somebody who is an expert in this field who actually studies serial killers on the show and talk to them and get their like an expert's opinion on it i love that who you know we're just we're just a bunch of dudes that did some research on serial killers yeah what do we know at the end of the day so obviously take everything we say with a grain of salt and you know these are our personal opinions on this subject but we want to know your thoughts of course on many of the questions that we asked today so make sure you are subscribed on youtube you can leave comments join us for the live premiere fridays at 12 30 on youtube you can also watch the show on Spotify. And yeah, we'll see you guys next week with another episode of Lights Out. Until then, lights out, everybody. Ooh.